You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Well, we uh, uh, are about to encounter uh, maybe one of the most important chapters of uh, the entire Bible. Uh, Romans chapter 8, we're going to take our time going through uh, Romans chapter 8 because it is foundational for our faith. If if you only had one chapter, this would be the chapter. If you're going to live out the walk that God wants us to walk, you'll need to understand what's in this chapter. I have entitled... Uh, Romans chapter 8, gospel security. What we find is that because of what Christ has done, because of you and I who are in Christ now having the Holy Spirit, we are secure in Him. The gospel has made a way that we can have no doubt about whether or not we are saved. In the last chapter, chapter 7, one mention of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 8, in the first 27 verses, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times. One of the jewels that we get to look at a fair amount as we look at chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit. Some believers live as if there is no Spirit, as if it's them to figure it out on their own. If they just are disciplined and and work really hard, then they can somehow live the life that God wants them to live. Others see the Holy Spirit as someone that they can manipulate to do tricks, to see signs and wonders. If they can just kind of say it the right way, do it the right way, then they can get the Spirit of God to do what they want them to do. Neither is a biblical view. We see in chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit is key for you and I who are in Christ. If you have no spirit, if the Holy Spirit does not reside in you, then you are not a Christian. The Holy Spirit is necessary for you and I if we are going to live the life God wants us to live. So, Uh, Can I just mention maybe this before we get going? Who is the Holy Spirit? He's part of the Trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not less than God the Son nor God the Father. He has a role that's different than God the Father and God the Son. And I'm praying that by the time we are done our study of Romans chapter 8, we would be better worshipers of God the Spirit. And so, if we understand anything about chapter 8, we know that we need the Spirit of God to lead us, to teach us, to guide us as we study this chapter. And so, let's pray now to that end. God, we pray that your Spirit would lead us, would guide us. God, we want to understand the gospel in all its glory. Or it is... Matt just read in 2 Corinthians 3 that 
the Old Testament, the old law came with glory. How much more so the new covenant? How much more so the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? God, we admit this morning once again that we are weak. That, Lord, we desperately need your spirit to lead us and to guide us this morning. We take no confidence in the flesh. Lord, we are mindful of the fact that, God, you know everything about us. God, I'm so thankful for that this morning, that you know every heart here. As I look out, I see some familiar faces, and, Lord, I see unfamiliar faces, Lord. But you know every person here. Lord, you know those who are watching online this morning, who are unable to be here for whatever reason, God, but they are watching online, and I, I pray that, Lord, you would speak to them as well. Lord, would you take your word, your precious word that you've given to us, and Lord, would you press it into our hearts with understanding, with power, Lord, that we might be conformed into your image. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much that you are a good, gracious, loving God. And we pray that as we study your word today, that we would know you more, that we would love you better. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Romans chapter 8. Everyone needs a Bible. I want you to be able to look down at these things for yourselves this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Maybe you have an app on your phone. That's fine. Let's just look at it, though, together. Romans 8, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to break it down. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the to the Spirit. Three freedoms that are for those in Christ Jesus. Three freedoms this morning that we will see that are, those, are for those who are in Christ Jesus. First, we are freed from the penalty of sin. We are freed from the penalty of sin. You'll note the third word there in 8 chapter 1, there is therefore. If you've been coming to the church for very long, you'll know that every time we see the word therefore, we have to ask, what is the therefore therefore, right? It points us back. It points us to what has been said before. And the question here is, this the verse before, maybe the chapter before, or maybe even back to Romans chapter 1. That's what, if you look at the scholars, if you do the reading, you'll see that they think possibly all three, right? Some people think it's chapter 7, just. Some people think it is uh, Romans 1 through 7. I happen to think that if you understand the way that Paul writes, you could truly say it really goes back to Romans chapter 1. Because what, from 1.16 on, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, from that point on, he has been explaining the gospel. 
in Romans 8 is, is the highlighting the implications of the gospel. If you were with us in our study, you'll know that chapters 2 and 3, he talked about the fact that we have all sinned. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. Every single person on this earth has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as we get into chapter 4, he shows that it's never been based on our own works, on our own righteousness that we've been made right with God. It has always been through faith. And he used Abraham as an example of that to show that God's way has not changed. It has always been through faith that you and I could be made right with God. You get into Romans chapter 5, and he talks about the fact that you and I have been saved by grace and grace alone through Jesus Christ. As we have placed our faith in him, we have received his grace. And as he gets to the near the end of the chapter, he talks about the fact that you can never out sin grace. To which his critics respond, well then I guess we just sin all the more. That grace might abound. Is that what you're saying, Paul? And Paul shows that those who are in Christ have been unified with him. We have died to our, we've died to sin and been made alive in Christ. We are no longer slaves of sin, but now we are slaves of righteousness. And then chapter 7, he was kind of a downer chapter, right? Remember that chapter, chapter 7? Like if we could just skip from 6 to 8, that'd probably be like great, right? Because he talks about this whole section from verses 7 to 25 that we're still going to wrestle with sin. Even in those of us who are in Christ, we still have this daily battle with sin until we die. There is no perfection in this life, but there will be perfection in the next life. This was his whole point as he's going through this chapter of chapter 7. To break it down, I, I think this is really helpful too as we think about, again, the context as we get to therefore. Romans 7, 5 says, For while we are in living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And he talks about the, how the flesh responds in verses 7 to 25. Wanting to do the right thing, but when I walk in my flesh, I fail. I do not do what I ought to do. But 7-6, which I think is where Paul's picking up from, it says this, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. And what he's explaining now is, how is it that you and I now live in the Spirit? How is it that, that we are different as a result of what Christ has done? What does that look like? And of course, as he's talking about not achieving perfection in this life, he asks this question, who will save us, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death, and he says this, but thanks be to God through Christ, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, therefore. So now we're kind of caught up. I don't know about you, but I kind of needed to do that. I like a little bit of reset, right? Two weeks ago in my world right now seems about like two years ago. 
Okay, so, so I need that reset. Hopefully that's been helpful for you. But now, therefore, what? There is no condemnation. Now, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. When you go through Romans chapter 7, sadly, let's be honest, you and I can relate all too well to what Paul is saying. You know, I want to do the right thing, but I, I fail. I wake up in the morning intent on living for Christ, and by the end of the day, I look back and, I, and I, I'm ashamed. I feel the guilt, and if I live in that world, I start to feel like, is his grace truly enough? Is it, is it possible to out-sin God's grace? And I feel the shame. And Charlie's talking about this. He says, guilt, he's talking about guilt and shame. Guilt is the objective reality that if committed an offense or a crime, shame is the subjective experience of feeling humiliation or distress because of what I have done. Do you have days like that? Do you have weeks like that? Months like that where you feel the guilt? You know that you have sinned. You, you see the objective reality of it and you feel the subjective shame as a result of it. And that weight is pressing down on you. Listen to what God's word says this morning. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This word for condemnation is not just being told that you're guilty. It is now then facing that penalty of sin to, to have the, 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 the punishment, the proper punishment given to you. Boaz puts it like this, we no longer have any term of punishment as a result of what Christ has done. This message is a needed reminder for every believer here this morning. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. Like, that's, we could just leave right now. Like, because that, that great, that news should lift our spirits here this morning. Look, I get it. There's a lot going on in our world right now, right? And, 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 and you might be tempted to be going a little bit crazy. Let this word be the foundation for all of us this morning. Let's, this is ground zero. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. You are no longer guilty before God. There is no longer the wrath of God on you as a result of your sin. It's been removed through Jesus Christ. What a weight lifted. Sure, there's still consequences when you sin in this world, right? There's still the natural consequences when I sin against her brother or sister, when I sin against the Lord. There's still those natural consequences of my sin, but the condemnation has been removed through Christ. And when I will stand before him one day, he will not say guilty, he will say innocent through Jesus Christ. And that's great news this morning. Now, I think it's important just, just to st restate the obvious. If you are not in Christ Jesus this morning, then you are condemned. 
right now, if you were to die, if Christ was to return, and you're not in Christ Jesus, you will be held accountable for your sin. God will give the verdict guilty. Let's be honest, there's no one here who is not guilty. We've all sinned. We're all in that together. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if I don't have Christ, when I stand before him, he will look at me and he will say guilty. And as a result of that, I will have to pay eternally for sinning against an eternal God. And the Bible says that that place is called the lake of fire, hell. It is a real place. And everyone who is not in Christ Jesus will be condemned. So, how can I avoid condemnation? Through Jesus Christ. How did, how did that condemnation get removed from me? This is what he wants to show us in verses 2 and 3. The second thing we see here is that we're freed from the power of sin. Freed from the power of sin. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How was it? It's 4. We see that he's about to give us an explanation. How is it that I am no longer condemned? As a result of my being in Christ Jesus, well, here is the explanation. You've been set free. How have we been set free? We've been set free. The law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Now, there's been a whole lot of ink spilled on what are these laws. What is the law of the spirit of life and what is the law of sin and death? What, what, are the, what is Paul talking about here? The law of sin and death, I think it's easier to come to a conclusion quickly. The law of the sin of death is the old law. It's the Torah, the law of sin and death. Now, as Paul has been making really clear as he's been going through here, the law itself, not a problem. The law was good. It was perfect. It showed us God's righteous requirement. Here's the standard. But it became to us sin and death. Why? Because of our flesh. Because of our rebellion. We didn't want to do what God's word has to say. From Adam and Eve on, that has been our nature. You say white, I say black. You say yes, I say no. That's our nature. And so it became to us sin and death. Now, as opposed to that, we see that there is now the law of the spirit of life. You'll see in your translation that spirit is capitalized with a capitalized S, noting that it is of the Holy Spirit. I think what Paul is saying here, and what he's alluding to, is the new covenant that God has brought about. That was the old covenant, the the covenant that brought sin and death. Now there's a new covenant. 
In Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, again, always good to write down notes as we go through just to help us to remember, to understand. But Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. As a result of Christ's coming, there is now a new covenant. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that we are not under the old covenant, but we are under now the new covenant. And what the old covenant could not do, the new covenant does. God has given us his spirit so that we might walk in his statutes, that we might have the ability to obey God's rules. Christosom puts it like this, the other, the Mosaic law, was merely given by the spirit. But this, the law of the spirit, even furnishes those that receive it with the spirit in large measure. The old covenant here is what you must do. The new covenant gives us the power, the ability, the ability to walk according to God's ways. The third person of the Trinity now dwells believers and makes it possible for us to do what God has called us to do. He comes with authority and, and, and power and frees us from the law of sin and death. We are no longer enslaved in our sin, and by the power of the Spirit, we can have victory over the flesh. So no longer are you condemned, and now God gives you his Spirit so that you might walk according to his ways. Stott puts it like this, the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. You and I could not live according to God's word any more than the Old Testament saint could. Apart from the Spirit, we have to have the Holy Spirit's enabling to follow his commands. All you have to do is flip back a chapter if you're wondering whether that not that's true, right? When I try, when I, it's about me and my flesh trying to achieve what the, what the flesh could not do, I fail. I fail over and over again. It is only by the power of the Spirit that you and I can overcome sin. And so we must Rely on the power of the Spirit and walk in obedience to, the counsel of it, to, to His counsel. In ourselves, we have no strength to overcome the law of sin and death. But through the Spirit, we've been set free. So how much confidence should I have in myself in this battle, just in case we're not clear? Zero. No confidence in the flesh. Self-distrust for my entire life. Self-confidence, none. All my confidence is in the Spirit of God to do what only He can do. 
Like, it's really quite incredible when you take a step back and you say, like, okay, like, how did my salvation come, apart, come about? We're going to see more in just a little bit here. But God the Father sends God the Son to take care of our sin problem, to, to pay the penalty for our sin. And then, if that's not enough, he says, okay, now I'm going to give you God the Spirit so that now you can walk in my ways. I'm just along for the ride, basically, right? Like, like what, what can I, like, look what I did. We did nothing. He did it all. So you see why there is gospel security when it's all about what he does, right? He's doing the work. Brickstock says this, self-confidence is the mark of the natural man. Self-distrust is the mark of the genuine disciple of Christ. So, when I, coming up to that temptation, I put no trust in myself, no trust in my own ability to overcome, but I put my trust solely in the Spirit of God. This morning, do you know and are you experiencing the Holy Spirit as your source of life in Christ Jesus? Let me ask you that one more time. Do you know and are you experiencing the Holy Spirit as your source of life in Christ Jesus. He is the only way that we might have life. Note again, he says, in Christ Jesus, just as he said in verse 1. In case we were not sure how this all come about, it is only through your union in Christ Jesus. 119 times Paul uses in Christ Jesus, in Jesus, in Christ. He wants you to understand that it is only through him that we might have these blessings. It is only through our being united with Christ that we might have life. We've already seen in the book of Romans that in Christ we are redeemed. In Christ we are alive to God. In Christ we are possessors of eternal life. It is through our union in Christ. This morning, we have seen that our being united with Christ results in not only us not being condemned, it results in our having the ability to walk in His ways. So, in the new covenant, we are able to do what we could not do in the old covenant. Paul, in his first sermon on his uh, missionary journey with Barnabas, Acts 13, 38-39, he put it like this. Acts 13, 38-39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Under the law of Moses, under the old covenant, we were enslaved. But now, through the new covenant, we've been set free. Well, now God shows us exactly how that took place. God the Father stepped in and did what the law could not do. Look down at verse 3 there. For God has done 
what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Again, the law was just the standard. It was given to us by God to show us what must be done if we would walk in his ways. But what it did not do is give us any power to be able to do it. The law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Again, that's pointing to you and I, our flesh. We could not do it. But God has stepped in. And again, think about the love of God that would do that. Why would God do that? Out of his love. Because he's a God of grace and mercy and compassion. And so when he looked down at us and said, everyone has failed. He wasn't just like, well, too bad for them. I guess it'll be the angels worshiping us and no one else. Everyone else will be condemned. He didn't do that. He stepped in. He did what we could not do. Verse 3, we see that he brought about our justification through Christ. In verse 4, we're going to see that he brings about sanctification. As we look at this, Jesus freed us from the power of sin by being sent. How did our justification come about? By Jesus being sent. We see that it says that God sent his own son. There's such rich theology in this verse. We need to see that. Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was not just a prophet. Jesus wasn't a God, as some would say. Jesus is God. And God the Father sent his own Son. As Lewis Johnson puts it like this, the, the three Greek epithets mark out the eternal sonship of the second person of the, of the Trinity. In other words, for all of eternity, God, who is one, has existed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's really important for us to understand. This being sent, it's the word pempo, the Greek word pempo, is to cause someone to depart for a particular purpose. God the Son was sent with a particular purpose to this earth. How did he come to this earth? We see that he became flesh. We are freed from the power of sin by him being sent, by him becoming flesh. We see that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, again, this phrase is really important. If we look at other scriptures, we see that Jesus came in the flesh. He came as a human being. How did that come about? He came to this earth through the Virgin Mary. He was born in Bethlehem. He became humanity. A couple of scriptures to help us with this. John 1.14, and the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians 2 gives us a, a greater picture of what his coming meant. Philippians 2 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man. Paul's saying, 
that God became a human, being fully God and fully man. This word for likeness, it means similitude or resemblance in no way implies the one of the objects in question has to be derived from the other. From the other. In the same way, two men may resemble one another even though they are not in no way related to one another. So likeness, it's like something but not necessarily exactly the same. Then the likeness of sinful flesh you could see how you could fall into ditches all over the place in that phrase and leave it to mankind, they find them, right? We'll find the ditches. The likeness of sinful flesh. Well, some people thought in the early days that meant he didn't really come in the flesh. There was this heresy by the name of docetism, docetism. Like, so in other words, when, we, when people seen God, he, when seen Jesus, he kind of looked like he was in the flesh, and he kind of looked like he was suffering on the cross, and it kind of looked like he died, but that wasn't true. He wasn't really in the flesh. He was in the likeness of flesh. See, it's right here in this verse. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He truly came in the flesh. Christ suffered thirst and hunger. He he, he, he experienced the emotions that you and I have. He was in the flesh. And he uses this word, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why would he say likeness? Because Christ never sinned. Christ never sinned. Morris puts it like this. Outwardly, the flesh of human body was exactly that of other human bodies. But it had been preserved from inherent sin by his miraculous conception and virgin birth, then kept free from actual sin by his sinless life. Thus his flesh was sinless flesh. So he came and had the same temptations that you and I have. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, again, really important to our faith. Jesus came in the flesh and lived a sinless life. This was necessary for you and I to no longer be condemned. Third, we see that Christ was offered. We have victory, sorry, we have, we've been freed from the power of sin by Jesus being offered. Again, look at that phrase. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That word, that, that, that phraseology and for sin could, could also be translated to be a sin offering. He came to be a sin offering. Again, this reminds us of so many different texts. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the perfect Lamb of God, the, the one who was sacrificed once and for all. John the Baptist, in seeing Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus needed to be a perfect sacrifice in order for our sins 
to be taken care of. Just as there was to be no blemish in the actual lamb in the Old Covenant ceremony, there, needed to, there could not be any blemish in Christ if he was to be the sacrifice that was needed. Schreiner puts it like this, God judiciously condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. And so Christ became that offering. And then thirdly, we see that we've been freed by the power, sorry, fourthly, we see that we've been freed from the power of sin by Jesus becoming a substitute. By becoming a substitute, we see this in this phrase, he condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned sin in Christ. Jesus took our place. He became our substitute, and God condemned sin in Jesus Christ. In Christ becoming our sin offering, God placed the sins of all who would believe upon Christ and declared him guilty. As he hung on the cross, he looked at Christ and condemned him. He declared him guilty, and then the wrath of God was poured out on him on the cross. This is how you and I can say, in Christ, we are no longer condemned. Because Christ was condemned in our place. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, all placed on Jesus, and then the wrath of God being poured out on Christ the Son from God the Father so that you would no longer be condemned. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The flip of us no longer being condemned is what we found in Romans 5, that we've been justified before God. He looks at you and says, not only are you not guilty, but you are righteous. How did that come about? By this exchange, my sin being placed on Christ and his perfect righteousness being placed upon me. Without God sending his son in the flesh to be our substitute, we would remain condemned. This is why anyone who is not in Christ is condemned, and all those who are in Christ have no condemnation. He paid the debt that you owed. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Moose says this, in the sense that Paul pictures sin as a power that holds people in its clutches and brings condemnation to them, in executing the full sentence of condemnation against sin, God effectively removes sin, sin's ability to dictate terms for those who are in Christ. Sin is no longer your master because of what Christ has done. He's broken not only the penalty of sin, he's broken the power of sin. And thirdly, we have been freed from the pursuit of sin. We've been freed from the pursuit of sin. As opposed to what the critics had said back in Romans chapter 6, our being justified, our being no longer condemned does not result in us then having freedom to sin. It results in us having freedom to walk in God's ways. That's what happens as a result of our being in Christ Jesus. 
The power of sin has been broken. We are now able to live differently. In fact, this is the whole purpose for which Jesus came. Look at verse 4. In order that, for the purpose of your sin being removed, you no longer being under condemnation, for the purpose of that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus, who lived the perfect life and then died in our place, has made a way that you and I can now walk in his ways. Really important for us to understand that whoever is justified, who's been made right with God, will also be sanctified. That we would be made holy as he is holy. The two go together all through Scripture. As you understand salvation, as you start to look at the intricacies of it, as you start to break it down, you would understand that no one can say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I place my trust in him, and not live differently. Just consider what happens in that moment of placing your trust in him. We're told that we've become new creations. We are given new hearts and new minds. And then he places his Holy Spirit within us, how could we then live the same way that we lived before? We cannot. It's impossible. And so if you've been justified, you will be sanctified. The righteous requirement of the law can be summed up how? What is the righteous requirement of law? What does the Bible tell us? What did Jesus say? Well, here's how you sum up the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then this, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those, you fulfilled the whole requirement of the law. And we're told here that in Christ, we are able to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. How? We'll look again at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of law might be fulfilled in us. Words matter. Fulfilled. This is in the passive voice, not the active voice. Passive voice means what? Somebody else is doing the work. It's not you doing the work. And then note, what's that preposition? Fulfilled by us. Is that what it is? What's the word? In us. I can't do it. I can't fulfill the righteous requirement. And so God has given me his spirit so that it might be fulfilled in us. Him doing the work. Not by us, but in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that does the work in us, and not by us. It is in us. The believer is able to fulfill God's commands through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. To walk, it means this, to live or behave in a customary manner with possible focus upon continuity of action 
to live, to behave, to go about doing. This should be the pattern of the believer's life. Perfection? No, Romans 7 told us we're not going to be perfect. But this should be the pattern of our lives. That we are continually walking according to the Spirit and thus fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law and not according to the flesh. By our flesh, we cannot defeat anything. But by the power of the Spirit, we can live the lives God desires for us. Augustine's famous formulation says this, Law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. You see, God has saved us that you and I might be holy, that we might be set apart to live according to his ways. The goal of God sending his son was not just that we would not be condemned, but that we would look like Jesus, that we might be conformed to his image. The Father sent his Son to free us from the penalty and power of sin. He's now sent his Spirit into our hearts that we might no longer have to pursue sin, but now instead pursue righteousness. I like the way S. Lewis Johnson puts it. Puts it. It's impossible for me, that is in my flesh, to keep God's law. It's impossible for God in me when I allow him to do his work, to not keep the law. What the flesh could never do, God can do. So if I'm walking according to the Spirit, guess what? I'm going to walk according to his ways. It's impossible not to do so. But if I'm walking according to the flesh, it's impossible for me to do his his ways. So through the power of the Spirit working on us, we are no longer enslaved to pursue sin we are now empowered to walk in faithfulness to God. Sure, we will not reach perfection in this life, but the power and the means to walk according to God's word is now possible through Christ and his spirit. And that should give us joy every morning when we wake up. We are no longer enslaved in our sin. But now through the spirit, we can walk in victory. Now, Alfred says an important aside here. As an aside, remember that progressive sanctification has no effect on the fallen flesh. In other words, the old flesh nature will never be made better in this life. Its power was broken to be sure, but it is still some nasty evil flesh, and it will be until the day we are glorified. The basis of our victory over sin is not that the fallen flesh is getting progressively better, To the contrary, the basis for our new power is the new covenant in which God has given each of us a new heart and his spirit. So there's no me getting better. I think this is so important for us to remember. Chapter 7 has made it really clear in our flesh, in our natural man, we will continue to be that same wicked, evil person. But now, in Christ Through the power of the Spirit, you are continually being changed. So what would that look like? 
what would a progressive sanctification look like in my life? The temptation comes, and instead of giving in to my flesh, I submit myself to the Holy Spirit and say, God, help me, empower me, counsel me, teach me. I want to do what Christ wants me to do. I want to walk according to the righteous requirement of your word. That's my desire. And that as I'm being conformed into the image of Christ, I would do that more and more and more in my life. That I would taste the sweetness of walking according to his ways. That I would desire to bring glory and honor to him through my life in an increasing way. So I was thinking about this text. I started thinking about what you and I are facing right now in our lives. What does it look like for the power of the Holy Spirit to be leading you and me in 2021 in the midst of this pandemic? What does that look like? What does it look like? And are we seeing it in our own lives and in the life of our church? Are we any different than the world right now? In our response to the stresses of this life, are we responding in our flesh or are we responding in the spirit? I think 13 months in, we know all the different arguments for every side of this thing, right? Some, some will say, we need to obey the government to the letter of the law. If you don't, you're going to kill people. People were going to die if you don't listen to everything that the government says. And you'll be very passionate about it. And you'll tell everybody on Facebook and Twitter and whatever else is out there, listen to me. Or, the stat came out, 53% of Canadians are $200 away from bankruptcy. So you're like, we can't. We can't listen anymore. People are, people are all going to lose their jobs. The restaurants are going to die. The gyms are going to die. They're, they're, you got to listen to me. We're, we're, we're going to lose all our freedoms. And you're very passionate. You tell everybody about your point of view. If your social media doesn't look any different than anyone else's, I think that's a problem. What is the fulfillment of the law of God? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to get to this, but maybe it's timely for us to read right now. Romans 13, 8 to 10. 
What does a life look like led by the Spirit? Owe no one anything except to love each other. To the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Whenever we give up love to win an argument, you've lost. You've lost. No one is listening to anyone. Have you noticed that? I get it. I wrestle daily with this whole thing. And I've been convicted by this text. I want to rant and rave. I want to, I want, you know, I'm just like, blah, 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 right? Like that's, that's, what I, that's what my flesh wants to do. But according to what God's word says, I'm not to live according to my flesh. I'm according to, lived according to the spirit. Let me just, here's some things that I thought about. When you're tempted to respond in hate, submit to the power of the Spirit in love. When you're tempted to despair and to be discouraged, submit to the power of the Spirit and experience joy, knowing that the one greater than you is in control. When you're tempted to lash out in anger, submit to the power of the Spirit and respond with gentleness instead. When people lash out at you, submit to the power of the Spirit and respond with kindness. When people sin against you, submit to the power of the Spirit and forgive them. This is really hard. You're right. You can't do it. Isn't that the point of why Christ had to come? Because we can't do it? As we feel the stress, as we feel the pressure, may the power of the Spirit be evident in our lives. And may the fruit of the Spirit be seen in our lives. Choose whatever side you want. Back it up with the scriptures and love accordingly. Let's pray. Lord God, we are desperate for you to have your way in our lives. God, I can't help but think that maybe some of these pressures that we're feeling are exactly what you want. Pressures so that we would no longer rely on our own abilities. Pressures so that we would no longer rely on our own flesh. But Lord, we would drop to our knees and cry out to you and ask that you would lead us. That you would have your way in our lives. God, I would quickly admit 
left to myself, God, I would continually walk in rebellion against you. But Christ, you have come, sent by the Father. You lived the perfect life, and you took my condemnation upon yourself so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God, I pray, would you help us to be set apart in this dark world? May the, may the world see the power of the gospel in us. Lord, as we love you and love those around us. God, we need your wisdom. We need your help. We need your instruction and we need your power now more than ever. God, help us for your glory and for your honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.